0: lovely to be with you this morning. My name is Talissi Guerra, um, and it's, it's great to be back. We were here a little while ago in the fall, and my husband Ryan was speaking. Um, I just want to start off this morning with a question. When is the last time you had a really good long sleep in? I mean... I, I, It's probably a funny question to be asking the people who are in the room, because it's probably the people who aren't in the room right now who are sleeping in at this moment. Um, Maybe some of you are still recovering from Daylight Savings Time last week. I don't know whose idea it was to ever spring forward. They obviously didn't have small children. if you have small children, maybe you're thinking, uh, yeah, there was that one time a couple of weeks ago when my kids let me sleep in all the way until 6 a.m. Uh, if that's you, I can resonate with that. Um, honestly, I don't really even remember the last time I had a good sleep in or felt fully rested. Like, I don't know if I even know what it feels like to just have, like, a feeling of well-restedness. And I think that's because, to be honest, like... Rest is just costly in this lifetime, isn't it? It's costly, and it never lasts very long. You know, when you think about going on holidays, the amount of work that it takes just to get ready to go on holidays, right? For me, that amount of work sometimes makes me wonder if this holiday is even worth it to go on at all. And then if that weren't enough on the front end doing all of that work, then what about when you come back and then you have to play catch-up, right? Like, all of this work involved, it's exhausting, and the rest that you get while you're in that small window of vacation it's great while it lasts but it never seems to last and it certainly never feels enough barely to even get you through the first few days of your return and that's because earthly rest was never built to last in fact the blueprint for rest. The Sabbath system that God built into the DNA of the nation of Israel was always meant to point to something bigger than earthly rest, something bigger than um something temporary. It was meant to point to something eternal. And Pastor John laid this out beautifully a few weeks ago in, in week one of this series that you guys have been, been journeying through together that Mitch has set up for us this morning. Um that that this series has been framed in such a beautiful way, I love it, that you're looking at the book of Luke through this lens of this promise, this kind of grand, larger-than-life claim that Jesus made in Luke 4. And I'm just going to read that again. Um, in Luke 4:18 and 19, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I love, John did a brilliant uh, job of kind of, breaking down the sabbath calendar and talked about there's not just a a sabbath day at the end of the week every seven days but then there's also a sabbath year every seven years and I love he called it the super sabbath and alliteration is one of my love languages so I just I love that and then after super Sabbathing seven times there was supposed to be this year of jubilee or this super mega sabbath he called it And then finally, we would come to this year of the Lord's favor, or this idea of a cosmic jubilee that's bigger than a seventh, seventh year. Um, But it was this hope that all of Israel was longing for and aching for, this idea that one day, true and complete and final rest And redemption is coming in the form of a Messiah who was coming to put all things to right and to restore shalom. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with the concept of shalom. Maybe John has preached on it a lot. I'm a guest speaker, so I can just, um, you know, plead ignorance. Uh, But I want to talk about it a little bit this morning because I think it will really help us wrap our minds around what I believe God is wanting to say to us today through this text. So you may already know that shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And what I find fascinating about this is that this word actually carries a lot more weight and covers a lot more ground than the English word peace. Um, the, The Hebrew concept of Shalom is actually much more robust than our kind of English concept. It's not just the absence of conflict the way we often think of peace, but this idea of shalom points to a state of wholeness and completion, uh, an overarching sense of harmony and well-being both within and outside of ourselves. And so it kind of gives a, a picture of a complex machine that has lots of moving parts, and all of those parts are working together in perfect harmony with no malfunctions and no breakdowns. And so it's complete harmony and and balance. And all the parts are working together as they should. And it's really a picture of this promise that Jesus says in, in Luke 4 when he spoke about this year of the Lord's favor. Because just like us, Jesus's audience, they weren't living in a state of shalom i mean they they understood its profound meaning in their cultural context but the the day to day reality that these people were living in was a reality of oppression and poverty and destitution and so when jesus showed up to the synagogue on this day and he said today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing he was making a radical statement He was making a radical statement in one of the most provocative ways possible. He was claiming that complete wholeness and freedom and rest was coming. That this hope of a jubilee was not just a fairy tale anymore. It wasn't just a nice idea, wishful thinking. But that it was coming to pass in real time before their very eyes. And he would spend the rest of his earthly ministry, living out this promise in tangible, practical ways, I mean literally, (coughs) setting the captives free. So, we're talking about that Jesus had come and he's made this claim, this radical claim. He's in the synagogue and he does this and then he goes on and he's living this out and he's doing these miraculous healings and doing this incredible, these incredible works in front of their eyes, and he's living out this promise in tangible ways, in practical ways that they can see. I mean, like he's restoring sight to the blind, he's, he's setting captives free, he's liberating the oppressed. All of this is happening in real time, and they're seeing this happen. But these acts were never meant to point... Humani- they, they were always meant to point towards something bigger. They were never meant to point to the acts in and of themselves. It was meant to point to something bigger, because the promise wasn't about something temporary in nature. It was about eternal shalom. It was about this promise of ultimate, uninhibited rest and completion. And imagine how good that sounds! Like that is just is such a beautiful promise. Because earthly rest is costly and fleeting, but the rest of God is free and forever. And we're going to catch a glimpse of that in the passage that we're going to explore together today. But before we dive in, I think, let's just take another moment and pray and invite God into this conversation. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that you love us. You are so good. And we pray that as we dive into this scripture today, we know there is something profound that you would like to say to us this morning. And I pray that um, for each one of us, that you would help us to just approach your word with soft hearts and open minds, and to hear what it is that you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you another question. What were you doing 12 years ago? I mean, not necessarily to the day, it doesn't have to be that specific, but in general. What was happening in your life 12 years ago? Now, that might be a hard question to answer off the cuff, unless something particularly uh, significant happened in your life that year. Like, I mean, think about it, in 2032, it's not gonna be that hard for us to answer that question. I mean, do the math, it was 2020. I spent way too much time on Zoom and toilet paper was impossible to buy, right? So, but um, in our story this morning, we're going to come across a couple of people. We're going to encounter two individuals who would have known exactly what was happening in their lives 12 years prior. For one, it was a year of rejoicing. It was a year of excitement and celebration. And it could also have been a year of um, sleepless nights and unmentionable odors. But it was also a year of beautiful firsts, first steps, first smiles, first words. Because for this man, it was the year that his first baby girl was born. It was a year that was marked by birth and life. This was not the case, however, for the second character in our story today. For this woman, this was, instead of being a year where life began, this was a year where life as she knew it came to an end. For her, it was a year of isolation and and not like 2020 quarantine. Like total, complete, utter rejection, exclusion, stigmatization, of her by her community, by her people, very likely even by her family. And all because of a gynecological condition that she had that would not only make it impossible for her to ever give birth, but that also rendered her unclean. She was considered unclean by the religious system of her time. Two stories, 12 years in the making, with two very different beginnings. Polar opposites, in fact. But in this moment in time, when we are going to see these stories collide in the middle of a crowded street in first-century Palestine, something about them, they have something very significant in common. Desperation desperation and, and in week one of this series um, John unpacked Luke four eighteen, and he talked about this uh, how we need to kind of expand our definition of poor when Jesus says that he's come to proclaim the good news to the poor because one of the individuals in our story was materially poor at the time of this story but the other one was not the other one was very well off and doing quite well And so, if we just look at economic status to define poor, then that person does not fit the bill. But in both of these stories, there was an element of physical poverty that they were dealing with that kind of brought them to the end of their rope where they found themselves at Jesus' feet in desperation, in need of a miracle. Friends, I wonder have you ever felt desperate? Have you ever felt physically poor? Have you ever felt like you were at the end of your rope and outside of a miracle, there was no way you were going to make it? I mean, I know I have. I think many of us have. There may be some of us in the room who are in that space today. And if you can identify with any of those feelings, then I want to just invite you into this story with me because I believe that God has something so important for us to glean from it. So I'm going to invite you to join me in Luke chapter 8, We're going to be reading from verse 40 all the way through the end of this chapter. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And some translations just say synagogue ruler. Um, First of all, this is a man of power, he is powerful, he is privileged. He is prosperous, and I think of it this way. In our day and age, we have this kind of gross thing in church culture. It's it's like celebrity culture, right, where there's a pastor or a speaker who sort of rises to prominence, and they kind of become famous within the church community. This is how I think of Jairus. And, like, literally his title is synagogue ruler. Imagine if that was John's title. Like, whoever's leading musical worship next Sunday, I dare you to introduce him like this. Like, all right, everyone, we've got a great surprise for you today. Uh, Our church ruler is in the house. Everyone put your hands together. Church ruler John Howe, come on up here. Imagine. That's so gross. Um, But that's that's what this guy is called. That's literally his title. And what I take away from that is simply that he is important and he's well-known. He's well-known enough that his name is written down in the Bible and we know him. It goes down in history. We know him by name now as Jairus. We know this man. And it contrasts very starkly. Um, ...with the woman that we're about to meet... ...and also the little girl that we're about to meet in this story... ...both of whom the church has been benefiting from for centuries. We know their stories. Their stories have been passed down... ...and told and learned from... ...and and preached about... ...and, and literally their stories... Uh, ...Mitch was talking about the four gospel accounts... ...their stories literally appear in three out of four of those gospels. Jesus' birth appears in one. These women... Three out of four Gospels, and yet neither of them was given the dignity of a name, meaning that neither of them could ever be, like, truly credited for the work that they did as women who went first. And I just feel like that's important to acknowledge because this is not the only place in Scripture where we can learn from an unnamed woman. But historically, our world has not been particularly kind to the vulnerable. And in this patriarchal society, not only were women not given voices or names, um, they were... They were hardly ever even given any sort of identity as we're about to see. But Jairus had an identity. He had a name. He had a position. He was important. And so already at this early point in the story, we're starting to see him through this certain lens. It's almost like he's a celebrity. We see him as important. And we're starting to become invested in his story. And the the story continues. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. We talked about desperation a little bit earlier. Like, if you were to ask me, what's a situation I would find myself feeling desperate in? This is it. And this was it for Jairus, too. In fact, the depth Of his desperation is actually really on display here, just in the simple fact that he is a synagogue ruler kneeling at the feet of Jesus. This is scandalous. This is scandalous because don't forget that the synagogue, the religious system of this time, was against Jesus. I mean, just go back to Luke 4, where this series is based. In Luke 4, when Jesus comes and he says this claim, I'm the Messiah. Today, the scripture is, is, is coming to pass in your hearing, in your presence. How did the people respond? The Bible says that they drove him out of town to the edge of a cliff with the intention of throwing him off it. Like, that's intense. I've heard of churches torching pastors. I know a little something about that. But throwing them off the edge of a cliff, that's where they were at. So coming to the feet of Jesus, falling prostrate in this position of worship and surrender, Jairus was putting himself in a pretty precarious situation. Because not only does he ask Jesus to heal his daughter, he actually says, hey, will you come to my house and heal my daughter? And Jesus agrees. He follows Jairus, and suddenly the story takes a turn, and we're about to meet our second character. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed By anyone so now all of a sudden the focus has shifted away from Jairus and his daughter and toward this woman who had a discharge of blood and I feel like that is the most sanitized clean and tidy and understated way you could possibly put this there was nothing tidy and neat about this woman's situation she was suffering from some kind of condition I'm not going to try to diagnose it but it affected her reproductive system. And it resulted in a constant and heavy flow of blood for 12 years. And, and not only had she suffered the physical um, ramifications of this, this hemorrhaging, but you know, which would include extreme pain, which would include exhaustion, very likely chronic anemia, But she also had suffered emotional and relational and religious trauma as a result. And here's why. Because in Old Testament law, menstruating women were were considered unclean. And they were to remain unclean for a full seven days. And during that time, anything and anyone that touched them would also be made unclean. Meaning that outside of pregnancy, every single female in the nation of Israel was unclean and untouchable for nearly 25% of their childbearing years. Wrap your mind around that. I told my husband that and he's like, well, I wonder if that might have been an incentive for them to have a lot of babies. I feel like maybe it was. Like, This is no small thing. Women in this culture were already looked down upon. And then add to that this routine uncleanness that really was just a result of being a functioning woman. And this was built into their law. And if you're not particularly familiar with Old Testament law, I'd love to go into it more. We just don't have time. But there were moral laws which define a timeless standard of morality that really still apply to us today. And then there were some civil and ceremonial laws, which were a little bit different. They were more put in place as the nation of Israel was being established um, to help them develop as a healthy civilization and also to point them to a pure and perfect and holy God. And Jesus came and he fulfilled those laws, and but frankly, a lot of them were there as they were wandering. These, these people were wandering around in the, in the desert, and they were living in tents, and they were living in close community, in close contact, and it was, were, a lot of these laws were there to simply keep disease and sickness at bay. But when you fast forward to Jesus's day... Now we get to this day where the religious institution had really made such a big deal about a lot of these civil and ceremonial laws that it was almost like they had become moral laws. And it was like that they had become the point and the purpose for the religious leaders piety instead of pointing towards God's purity. And because they were so focused on keeping these ritualistic ceremonial laws, they really lost sight of what it means to understand and engage with the character and the heart and the nature of God. And, and, and that's what Jesus cared about, right? This is why we see Jesus so often. He was less concerned with um, some of these practical laws that don't infringe on morality, and he was more concerned with people's posture toward him, people like this woman who, even in her unclean state, would come and kneel, before him. And remember, when it comes to this woman, um, she was not just in a seven-day window of uncleanness. She had been unclean for 12 years, untouchable, not allowed to associate with anyone cast out from society, living on the margins. She was denied access to, to the temple, to the synagogues, She was denied her very right as a child of God to engage in corporate worship. And so really, she was denied an identity outside of her broken femininity for 12 years. Talk about trauma. Let's continue. So she came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. There's so much scandal in this story. Like, first we see Jairus, uh, a synagogue ruler, coming and kneeling at the feet of Jesus and talking to Jesus. Scandalous. But even more scandalous than that is a woman in Jewish culture coming into a crowd when she is unclean, and then going up and touching a man. Like, as if her life wasn't ruined enough already. This was enough to just put it over the edge. I mean, this this is scandalous. This is the type of thing that would have 20 million views on TikTok the next morning because it's, so, it's such an outrage. Like, you think Will Smith slapping Chris Rock was bad. Like, th- that has nothing on this. She came up behind him. She snuck up. She knew her shame. She knew she wasn't supposed to be doing this. She'd been living in this shame for 12 years. She was so desperate. And not only that, she was weary. Physically, emotionally, mentally. She was weary and exhausted from this nightmare that she'd been living in for a decade. And all she wanted was rest. And she thought, if I just touch the hem of his garment. I feel that desperation in my life sometimes. I feel that weariness deep in my spirit. Maybe you've felt it too. You know, things in life fall apart. People hurt you. People get sick. Things don't happen the way we expect. Relationships break down. Loved ones are lost. We think, if only I could have a touch of God in my life. So she came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, the discharge of blood ceased. Immediately. Think about that. Twelve years of this affliction immediately healed. Twelve years. Do you know what that is? That's 380 million seconds. In one second, healed. Less than one second, healed. And Jesus says, he asks this crazy question. Jesus says some weird stuff sometimes. He said, who was it that touched me? And uh, when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing in on you. In other words, Jesus, we're walking through a mosh pit. Literally everyone touched you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. I really love, there's this parallel between this woman and Jairus, and I love this parallel. What do both of them do when they are humbled in their desperation before Almighty God? They come both in their desperation, both in the weariness of their spirit, and they fall down at his feet. Because rest is received At the feet of the Father. Rest is received at the feet of the Father. And so this woman, she comes and she trembles and she kneels and she bows and she's wondering Am I going to find what I'm looking for? Am I going to find what I've spent all of these years looking for? And what happens? She finds it in an instant in one single word that comes from the mouth of the true father. And he says this, daughter. He says, daughter. Or as Matthew, from his point of view, says it, take heart, daughter. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I love that. I love the way that Jesus... His heart, his hardest father is represented here. I, I have two daughters. You may have seen them having a party during the music time earlier. Um, but when one of them gets hurt or is upset or just is in need of some mommy loving, what do I do? I scoop her up, I hold her, and I say, it's okay. Shh, mommy's got you. I'm here. You're safe. Take heart, daughter. And we co-regulate and... She starts to feel better, and eventually she's ready to get down and go in peace. And that's exactly what happens here with Jesus and this woman. Jesus says, who touched me? And she is certain in this moment, like, she is going to be in trouble. She's trembling. She's fearful. She's panicking. She's worried, you know, and and she, she knows she's not going to get away with it. So she goes and she fesses up. And what happens? She's expecting a lashing. She experiences love. And everything she had been through, after all of it, she finally found herself at the feet of the Father. And Jesus looks down at his little girl and he says, Shh, I've got you. I've got you. Take heart. And just in case, just in case she's got the wrong idea, just in case she gets caught up in this cycle that so many of us get caught up in, myself included, this idea that maybe this favor from God was brought on by something I did, you know, just in case she thought it was her action of, you know, reaching out and touching his cloak, Jesus pulls her in and he says, no, 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 it wasn't about that. You know, this had nothing to do with your performance. This had nothing to do with your works. He says, this has everything to do with your faith in me. And I wonder if there might be a few of us in the room who could do with a little reminder like that today because we're running around trying to get it all right, trying to earn God's favor. And we think, if I just, if I just, if I just. Anybody live in that space sometimes? And Jesus is like, that's not actually what this is about. Faith isn't about conduct, faith is about confidence. Where are you placing your confidence? My kids, when they come running and screaming at me and looking for comfort and looking for safety, it's because they're confident that I've got them. Because I do. I have them. And I know what they need. And I've got them. Jesus knows what you need. And he's got you. So Jesus tells her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And i got to say, when he says go in peace, this isn't Jesus sending her away like everyone else in her life has always done. It's not about that. He's actually offering an invitation. He's saying, look, you've finally found me. You've come to the feet of the Father, and you have received rest, actual rest. And he says, now go in that rest. Like He's like, I am rest. I am shalom. Now, go and live in the promise of shalom. Trust that promise, he says. Trust that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what else goes wrong, no matter who else abandons you, no matter how hard things get, he says, trust that I am your true rest and that you can always come and receive rest at the feet of the Father. And that's the invitation that Jesus, I believe, has for each one of us today. Come and receive rest at the feet of the Father. Just come. Come. And by now you've probably forgotten that we started this out with a whole different story. Um, But there is a little girl whose life hangs in the balance. So let's try to quickly wrap that one up too. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, he clearly senses the panic starting to rise up for Jairus. He does the same thing as he did with the woman. He co-regulates and he says, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And this isn't like an angry, annoyed, do not fear. I don't know about you. Sometimes I feel like that when I read the words do not fear in the Bible. I get this idea that Jesus is mad at me because I do fear. And so I'm like, I must be failing. He's saying don't fear and I am fearing. (laughs) But that's not who Jesus is. That's just my own voice of self-condemnation that's like pretending to be Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that. He's, he's not saying, what's wrong with you, Jairus? Like, just get your act together and stop fearing already. Like, he knows this guy's daughter just died. And so in this moment when Jesus is saying, do not fear, this actually isn't even about Jairus. And it's in the same way that that's true for all of us. Whenever we read these words, do not fear, do not worry in Scripture, they're not about us. When Jesus says, do not fear, this is less of a statement about us and more of a statement about who He is. Let me say that again. When Jesus says, do not fear, this is less of a statement about us and it's more of a statement about who He is. He's not saying, do not fear because you are capable of not fearing. He's saying, do not fear because I am capable of being enough for you. He's saying, my peace transcends all understanding. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And whatever it is that your fear is rooted in, whatever it is that your fear is about, I'm bigger than all of it. And so he tells Jairus, hey, take heart. Do not fear. I've got you. I've got you, he says. And when he came to the house... He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. And we know when Jesus goes anywhere with Peter, John, and James, awesome things happen. So this is where the story is going to get good. Um, so he goes with Peter, John, and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And there are so many points of significance here. But we really um, run out of time. So I want to just bring you along into one last picture that sort of forms in my mind as I read this. Jesus walks into this room. He goes in with Peter, James, and John and the child's parents. And her parents have entered this room many times, right? This is in their home. But this is the first time that Jesus has entered the room. And, and when he does, something significant happens. Because although her father, her earthly father, has come into her room many times... Now her true father has entered the room. As much as this girl is Jairus' daughter, she is even more a daughter of God. And as much as Jairus loves his daughter, we, we can see that clearly. She is even more beloved of God. And so Jesus walks in, and all of a sudden, the true Father has entered the room with her, the true healer, the true physician, the, the one who has come to restore true shalom, the one who can give her ultimate rest and peace. He's here, the one who can reach down into the depths of her physical poverty and proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, what is that good news? It's not that this girl has been brought back to life. Because, I hate to say it, but that girl one day is still going to face death. And it's not that the woman had been healed from her 12-year affliction, from 12 years of suffering, because just like us, she's going to suffer again in this lifetime. The realities of physical poverty are are real for all of us in our lives, whether it's in our own bodies, whether it's in the bodies of the people around us that we love. And not everyone experiences physical healing in this lifetime. Most of us have not witnessed a resurrection. But that wasn't the point of these moments. Jesus' miracles weren't meant to set a precedent. They were meant to to point to a promise. A promise that was so much bigger than the healings, bigger than the miracles themselves, something so much bigger than the temporary fleeting realities of this earth, because even these healings wouldn't last in the natural world. Just like our rest never lasts. Earthly rest is costly and fleeting, but the rest of God is free and forever. So come and receive rest at the feet of the Father. This is the good news of this story. This is the good news for all of us. Daughter, son, arise here's some questions for you to ponder this week. Do you trust that he's got you? Can you be confident today that he is bigger than your problems? Are you willing to come in your desperation and in your weariness and fall at the feet of the father in faith and believe that rest is coming? I would encourage you to spend some time pondering some of those questions this week because your father, your true father, father, your perfect and good father. And maybe some of you didn't have that kind of a relationship with your father in this life. And and if so, it's probably hard to think of God as a father like that. I, I get that. God is not that father. He is a good and kind and loving father. And this is what I think he wants you to hear today. I've got you. I've got you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You see us, you know us, you love us, and you've got us. Lord, as we go into our weeks, would you help us to sense your presence, to feel you near? And would you help us to come in humility and to come and find rest at the feet of the Father? Come and find rest in you. Jesus, you are shalom our rest. Help us to live in the promise of that rest and to go in that rest. In Jesus' name, amen.